Well, good to see everybody. Um, So every week I give this reminder that you are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Um, That as a Christian, the thing that is most true about you, most true about you, is not how good of decisions you've made this week or the bad things that you've done or even the way you feel about yourself tonight the way that you feel about others tonight. Uh, As Christians, the thing that is most true about us is that we are united not by what we've done, but by what Jesus has done. That we are defined by his work. That everything that is true about Jesus, what we just celebrated this past Sunday, his life, his death, his resurrection, Easter, that's yours. That's what's true about you. That's good news. That truly what connects us and causes us to be here, to unite here in love with one another is what Jesus has done. And out of that, we move and live and we have our being. Uh, So I'm so glad you're here tonight. Uh, We've been going this semester over the book of Ephesians. And one idea that we've talked about from this book is the fact that our heart commitments They often shape what we do and how we feel. Uh, One of my favorite shows this past decade is Parks and Recreation. It's an awesome show. Um, And there's this episode where Leslie is trying to get people to put things into her time capsule for Pawnee. I don't know if y'all remember this episode. So she's gathering from people items and things that they want to encapsulate into this uh, time capsule. And there's this guy that approaches her in her office, and he is obsessed with putting his favorite item into the time capsule. And that is the Twilight Saga, uh, the trilogy of books. Is it trilogy or is it four books? Okay, the – what is that? Uh, Saga. Um, So the Twilight Saga. And so the whole episode is about Leslie having to wrestle with this guy about putting Twilight – into this time capsule. And so what she decides to do is she gets uh, a city council meeting, um, a town hall meeting where people just come and they debate what they can put in, what they, what they want to leave out. And there's this woman who stands up and she's from this like Christian group, this Christian organization. And she is just emphatic that there is no way we can put twilight into this time capsule. Because of everything that it represents, it's anti-Christians, there's vampires, there's werewolves, there's magic, and we need to protect our children from that. Um, Well, then right after that, there's another man that stands up. And he's from the Pawnee Liberty uh, Association or something like that. It's an atheist organization. And Leslie's like, okay, good. We'll have somebody who debates the other side. And uh, we'll we'll speak about why we should, should put Twilight in. And he's like, no, absolutely not. We're not putting Twilight in because of it actually has Christian undertones and it implies Christian themes. And that is why we should not put Twilight. It's everything I'm against. So what's the point of me saying that? The point is that we actually do the same thing with the Bible at times. That our heart commitments cause us to to be resistant towards certain things and approve of certain things based on whatever context we're in. Based on what we feel, 
that we often see what we want to see and we hear what we want to hear. And this is especially true for the passage that we're actually going to read tonight. It's the famous marriage chapter, uh, marriage passage, Ephesians 5. And it's a passage about husbands and wives. And depending on what culture you're surrounded by or uh, what heart commitments you have, you most likely focus more on particular aspects of this passage. Uh, Tim Keller calls these our cultural filters. And they happen as we read scripture all the time. That, for instance, the text we're about to read opens with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul goes into specifics saying to wives, submit to your husbands. And then husbands, love your wives. Now, through Western eyes, we love personal autonomy. We love um, seeking our own happiness, fulfillment. And so we read this and we approve of this idea of marriage with love in it. You know, happiness, love, reverence. Yet we resist this idea of submission to others. Uh, that no one should impinge on, you know, my particular freedom, right? However, in traditional cultures, they do the opposite. They, uh, they read this and they actually uh, love this idea that we're about submitting to the greater good, submitting to one another, the roles we play. Um, they, they actually laugh at this idea that love should be a, a huge focus of things. To them, it's about duty, about, about duty of society, regardless of how they feel. Well, know that the Bible, it actually challenges both of, both of those things. It speaks to both of those cultures. That one thing we try to do here in RUF is recognize and name and understand where, what are our heart commitments. Like we, we confess that. We bring that out. Um, but it's because we want to be changed by Scripture, that we believe scripture has authority. And so we long here to study it, to hear it, to know what it says, because we believe that God reorders the way we live and think through his word. That his word brings us life. It's not burdensome. Contrary to popular belief sometimes. So let's read together Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. A common passage often recited at weddings. And let's study this passage with with a hope that it shapes, it reshapes our common assumptions about things. That we long for God to speak to us, to transform us, and ask him to reorder our lives based on who he is, rather than based on maybe how we feel or what we assume about things. Um, So, flip over (laughs) your bulletin. I might start doing it on purpose just so I can do that little saying every time. Yeah. Um, all right. This is God's word. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Starting at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, uh, meet us here tonight. Um, We long to uh, know what you mean, what you say. Uh, We long to hear from you. Um, Because God, we know you're good. We know that um, you know what's best for us. And so I pray that we're able to come to you with everything, uh, that we're able to wrestle with you with questions we have and doubts we have, um, that you uh, meet us there. And I pray that you will meet us here tonight. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Um, So in this room are all different kinds of people. Um, All of us come from different places. We all have different families. And one question I want to open with tonight is what makes a good relationship? What makes a good relationship? That a lot of times this question is answered based on where we've come from. That some of us have had experiences of good relationships in this room. Uh, Maybe your parents have loved you really well. Maybe you've seen your mom and dad love and serve each other really well. Uh, Maybe you've had relationships with mentors or friends that you feel like you're loved and cared for. However, others of you may have experienced the opposite of that. You know, maybe you've come from broken homes, um, from divorce, or homes that have been full of anger, maybe violence. Maybe relationships haven't really been the safest thing for you. You know, a place where you can truly be known and loved, where you can bring your full self. And all of this history in your life shapes how you believe you're supposed to relate to one another, how you believe people are supposed to relate to you. And so one aspect of this book in Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians, God's word that we're studying is that part of God's great plan. Remember at the beginning, he talks about this mystery, this great plan unfolding to unite all different kinds of people from all different kinds of backgrounds under Christ. And he gives them a new history. He gives them a new story that he is creating a new community And it's one that God uses to reorder the way you relate to one another. Reorder how you understand relationships based on his community. And so tonight, uh, next week we'll talk about different types of relationships. Tonight we're going to be focusing on the first relationship Paul talks about. Uh, And that is the way uh, God in this new community reorders the relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, when I look around in this room, I believe I'm the only one married here. Is there anybody married here? 
Okay, that would have been a complete shock to me if one of you stood up. Oh, wow. Okay, Connor. Just kidding. Um, so I'm the only one who has a wife, Valerie. Now, why do we need to, to all study this chapter on wives and husbands when I'm literally the only husband that is here tonight? Um, well, first off, most likely, uh, many of you will get married one day. Now, um, to some of you, that seems extremely far off and potentially uh, would take a miracle for God to work. Maybe you feel that way. I don't know. Um, others of you, it's actually right around the corner. These two engaged couple over here. Some of you are dating. Um, some of you are engaged. And so this particular passage can give you a vision for what maybe you'll experience one day. You know, something you can stick in your back pocket. However, first, let me say a caveat. Um, sometimes the way we speak of marriage in the church is that it's for those who have really figured it out. They've gotten to a certain level of this Christian life. You know, they, they finally arrived and now they get married. Uh, so in other words, uh, you have single people who we just pray will one day experience this higher calling of, of marriage. And can I say that is not true one bit. That's not true at all. In fact, I am sorry if that's the idea that is painted and has been painted for you about marriage. Uh, it is a calling. It's a calling that God gives some people in his church. But it is not the calling that everyone strives to hopefully one day be at. I mean, you may feel that way subjectively, like long for it. I have friends that are single uh, and some who feel like that this is how they're going to be. They're going to be single the rest of their lives, that they are just as faithful. And honestly, at times they are more faithful than me and than many married people I know. Uh, the church needs to do a better job of dignifying and recognizing and equipping that calling, singleness. It's not lesser than. And also, uh, all of you in this room are single. You're not married. So by definition, you're single. You are not lesser than. Just know that. The writer of this letter, the Apostle Paul, was a single man. He wrote this letter. In fact, um, I, I mean, Jesus himself <laughs> was a single man. So um, what do you get as single people studying this text today? And what you get today is what this passage proclaims loudly in verse 32. It says regarding marriage that this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That remember, uh, we said at the beginning of the semester that Paul uses this word mystery and he's referring to something that is hidden that must be revealed to us by God. And he's saying to all of us that marriage is something that reveals to us God's relationship to all of us who are part of his people. That's something about God's design for marriage paints for us a picture of the way that God relates to you. That what Paul is saying is that for all of us in this room, ideally when we study 
and look at this Christian understanding of what marriage is between a husband and a wife, the relationship between a husband and a wife, we see and recognize and worship a God who is married to us, a God who longs to be with us, a God who sought after us. And so for the rest of this time, I want us to consider uh, the picture of Christ's relationship to his church through what Paul says about husbands and wives. If it's supposed to look like Christ's marriage to his church, what should it look like? So let's look. There are just two things. Um, First, going to look at the pattern of marriage and then the power of marriage. And so number one, the pattern of marriage. So right out of the get-go, Paul gives two separate instructions for Christians to live out this pattern. Um, He tells wives to first submit to their husbands out of reverence for Christ. Now understand, first off, this is a specific task of wives to husbands, not to every single man. It's also a word that causes us to think of certain images in our context sometimes. Uh, Maybe we think of like a UFC fighter causing someone, like forcing someone into submission. And we think of that, that like that, that word submission kind of comes with that connotation. Uh, or we think of um, just oppressive authority, making servants submit, submit to my rule, submit to our rule. But the word here, it, it's a military word. It's a powerful word uh, that gives the image it, it, of a soldier that's willingly submitting to a general. It's something that is done by the person, not forced onto them. Something done by them, by the wife, voluntarily. Paul is not saying that wives, you must be a doormat. Or um, you must let the husband walk all over you and do whatever he wants. This submission is essentially, uh, it means that wives need to make sure the husband knows that he's your guy. That you're for him that you're behind him, that you long to do what's best for him. Very similar, by the way, to what we're about to talk about Paul when he commands husbands to love their wives. It means that the wife is not going to use their husband's failure against him or attack him. It means that she will lovingly confront her husband even when it's needed. It's not just keeping the peace, allowing him to just do what he wants. It's willingly telling the husband what he needs to hear in gentleness and love. It's a gift to him. It's a partner. It's someone the husband definitely or or most definitely needs. It's not just mindlessly following someone, but passionately choosing to honor and serve your husband just as one who is devoted to loving and serving the Lord. There's this recent biography that came out about um, the pastor I mentioned earlier, Tim Keller. And uh, it mainly explores all these different books and influences um, that have influenced his life and people. And there's this one chapter on his relationship with his his wife, Kathy. And in the chapter, it talks about um, this interview that Kathy once had. Um, And the interviewer asked her this question, how has it felt to always be in second when it comes to ministry and life with your husband. 
Uh, and I think she was, you know, asking a genuine question. Uh, but it, it sort of was implying that Kathy, who was also extremely, is extremely gifted, smart, talented, an incredible speaker, knows the Bible super well, is a counselor, was sort of having this limit placed on her um, of what she did in order to truly submit to her husband. And Kathy, without missing a beat, says, oh, I am not second. I am the wind in Tim's sails. And there's no greater joy than to be used to lift him up. That for Kathy, it was not about competing or getting ahead. Her greatest joy was to continue to push her husband into being the man that God had created him to be. That this is the idea of willingly and voluntarily submitting to her husband. Not out of forced oppression or weakness, but out of love for the person that God has called her to be married to. Not to mention, this is also, when Paul talks about us submitting to one another, we put the wind in each other's sails. We seek the best interest of each other. But also understand that sometimes it's really hard to do this. That whether that's a, a wife um, uh, to a husband who maybe isn't acting in a way that doesn't necessarily deem a lot of respect. Or even with friends who have not treated you right. That one of the ways that you can truly cling to Jesus is by experiencing something he knows oh so well. That in the garden before his death on the cross, he states with tears and sweating blood, God, not my will, but yours be done. I submit to you that it takes tremendous power to submit out of reverence for Jesus. It's not being weak. It's far the opposite. But Paul also sets a pattern for husbands to follow. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That during this time, husbands, you know, they wouldn't have batted, they wouldn't have batted an eye at the pattern Paul is setting for wives at the start. Because it was assuming in this time, it was assumed that this was how society continued to flourish. You know, through order, through understanding our roles, through commitment to a greater purpose, a greater good. However, this command for husbands to love their wives at all costs to themselves would have perhaps caused a little bit of resistance. That Paul is essentially saying, hey, you see how Jesus died for all of us? He wants you to do that for one person. And it's the woman you're married to. She has to be on your mind and on your heart and your commitments and everything you do. You're to cherish her more than gold or your status or your job or your power. You're to love her just like you would love your own body. That when people see her, they are enamored with the way she is flourishing because you are actively making sure she is being lifted up. That she's confident because of the way you empower her. That she's secure because of the way you provide for her in everything you do. There's a book called Resplendent Bride 
And it's written by a man who is remembering his life uh, during a time when his wife was really, really sick. And he says this, For me being the head of my family, it looks like laundry and dishes and cooking, preparing her feeding tube and going to the pharmacy and bathing her and carrying her and sitting beside her in the floor of the bathroom next to the toilet because the nausea just wouldn't go down. Go away. It's weeping together. Headship. It's opening the door for her and holding her hand as you walk through endless hospital corridors. It's cleaning the house because company is coming and she likes it a certain way. It's keeping her water ice cold because it numbs her cold sores. Headship isn't about your wife serving you. It's about serving her as Christ served the church. Christians are helpless, and yet Christ stays by our side. You know, sometimes we get this idea um, that the man, you know, being the head, is this picture of power, uh, of, you know, masculinity, of making sure his family is obedient, making sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. But the picture painted here is one of Jesus gently, lovingly serving and caring for his family. Gently and lovingly caring for you and I. He is the head that I want to submit to. He cares for us. So ultimately, this leads us to the power of marriage. How do we do this? How do wives and husbands actually do this? I think it's important to see how this passage starts. It starts in verse 21. I put that there for a purpose. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this verse, it's at the end of a longer sentence, starting at verse 18, which says, be filled with the spirit. That part of being filled with the spirit will look like submitting to one another out of our love and devotion of Jesus. And what this implies is that this picture of submitting and what follows, the picture of a Christian marriage can only be done through the spirit's work. That sometimes we think, you know, as long as we just follow A, B, and C, we'll be good. You know, so, so we heap up all these instructions on young couples. You know, we give them their rule book of what they need to do to be good husbands and good wives. And what we first need to stress is that this is a work that is impossible without understanding that you need something beyond yourself. That it is impossible to do. If you don't understand your need and reliance on Jesus, you need God's spirit to love one another. You need God's spirit to serve and submit to one another and consider each other more important than yourselves. Uh, So without that, you may look good on the outside. You may be able to have it together, you know, following whatever rules you've been given, you know, feel you're supposed to follow, but you may be decaying on the inside. I can tell you many families that look great but they feel lost. It may be just become behavior modification. On the flip side of that, you may do what feels good. You may seek out happiness. You may be doing whatever works best for you. But on the outside, none of it is how it should be. You know, it ultimately leads to futility. 
It's just meeting whatever your own interests and circumstances are. Where do we go? (laughs) So that you need the power of the Spirit. It means that you don't have to look to your spouse or any relationship to bring you fulfillment and happiness because they can't do it. That you can willingly submit and willingly love at all costs, all costs to yourself because ultimately you have received all that you need. Every single thing you need from your spouse, you've been given it by Jesus. You don't have to use the other, but you can joyfully serve one another. And this picture of the way you recognize this, follow this pattern and grip onto the Spirit's power, points us all to a Jesus who willingly served us at all costs to himself, who submitted in everything to the Father's will so that we could be married to him forever. So my hope is that one day when Wynn, Darby, or Maddie are out playing with their friends, or if you guys have kids one day when you're married and, and they're out playing with their friends and the topic comes up, you know, that often does um, all those theological conversations that come up in the sandbox, you know, um, and, the, and it comes up like, what does it mean to love Jesus? And the hope is that they would say something like, you know, have you ever seen my dad love my mom? Or have you ever seen my love, my mom love my dad? I think it looks something like that. And the only way that is possible is by understanding that we love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Dear God, um, I pray that uh, you would uh, meet us that you would give us power and strength by your spirit, that you would guide us and shape us, that we would long uh, to want to walk in your ways. We would long to want to look like you, especially in the way we love one another. God, we cannot do this on our own. And if there is ever a passage that we look at and we say, we are helpless without you, let it be a passage like this. Let us long to crave your spirit and crave how you love us so that we can actually be equipped to go about doing anything. It's in Christ's name. Amen.